My Seven Chakras, episode 363. The Seven Chakras, swirling vortices of energy, positioned throughout our body, from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras. And now, your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, host and founder of My 7 Chakras, my7chakras.com, the show where we help you experience effortless healing, awakening, and abundance. In today's episode, we talk about some really powerful and important topics like how to have a long and lasting and thriving relationship, how to be a better partner, how to deal with conflict, and the difference between love and loving, and how to bring more consciousness into your current relationship. So if you're interested in any of these topics, then you might want to wait till the very end. But before diving in, I'd like to remind you that I've recently released a 24-page PDF outlining some of my favorite ways to raise my vibes and feel better immediately. To get your free PDF, visit my 7 forward slash feel better now. That's my 7 is the word, my 7 forward slash feel better now. All right. So let's bring on our special guest for today. Linda Carroll, who is the author of Love Skills and Love Cycles, while she has worked as a therapist and couples coach for over three decades and has acquired numerous certificates and degrees along the way. She says that her own 35-year marriage is a primary source of her knowledge when it comes to the cycles of love. She lives in Corvallis, Oregon. So with that, let's bring on our guest. Linda, are you ready to inspire? I'm ready to inspire. Great. So welcome to our show. Uh, my first question is, what inspired you to write your book, Love Skills? The, uh, the, the inspiration um, came from, let me just, sorry. That sure. just, um, the inspiration came from the relationship, my long-term marriage, where we you, had lots of insight. We'd done counseling, we'd read books, we'd listened to, those days there weren't podcasts, but we'd listened to radio programs, and still we had the same recurring trouble over and over and over again. And we felt like we had so much love. We felt sorry sometimes for people that didn't have so much love. That was at the beginning. We certainly got humbled. But we, we had because we had this repeating pattern, there were a couple of things, I call them loops. We couldn't break them, no matter how much we understood them. And so I started to look at skills. I started to look around for people who taught classes. And I, because I believed for a long time that a lot of what, a lot of the trouble that went on in relationships really wasn't a therapy issue as much as it was a lack of skills. And I taught communication classes. And when I was a teaching assistant going to school to become a therapist, and I often thought a lot of my couples that I work with need those skills I taught to those students. They don't more than they need therapy. So we started to do lots of workshops and we trained with all kinds of programs. And what I found is that the skills it, it were the secret for being able to change those patterns, not the understanding, but the practice of definite skills that we practiced over and, and still to this day practice. So 
when you look at at um, a path of um, enlightenment or consciousness, for me, that path has been my relationship because those challenges have been a way for me to really refine my own ability to stay mindful and and to pay attention to how I'm contributing to the trouble. So thanks a lot for sharing. Uh, Linda, what is your definition of lasting wholehearted love? Oh, that's a that's a very complicated question. Um, I don't know how to answer. Uh, I don't know how to answer that definition. My my definition of wholehearted love is that is a relationship where we work at, and that's important. We work at because we don't really arrive any more than we do with unconditional love or consciousness, but where we work at learning to respond and not react to our partner and from a whole heart rather than a closed heart or a half heart or a shut a broken heart a shut down heart to really work on it and that means working on our own wholeness and lasting i guess my definition would be that it goes through lots of cycles and, and that it changes and that we can come from that wholehearted place regardless of what we feel because mm-hmm. love is a feeling that changes and sometimes we don't feel that with our yeah. partner we feel all kinds of other things but being able to respond from wholeheartedness i think that's the real difference between a mindful relationship and an unconscious relationship beautiful i love a couple of things that you shared over there you said that it's a process and that it's probably never done but it's a process that you that you need to be mindfully aware of on a daily basis uh, and you also alluded to the fact that we ourselves might be sort of going through our own inner triggers or trauma or healing our own selves. And the better we're aware of those things, the better we are able to arrive in that relationship and work towards making it a better, a thriving and beautiful relationship. Uh, so thanks a lot for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've also written and you've spoke eloquently on the idea that love is an inside job. So what do you mean by that? It starts inside of us and our, our culture. You know, if you just listen to the songs, they have so much to do with you. When mm. I saw you, I feel whole. You make me better. But that none of that's true. And mm. I, I believe that it's I have to make me better. I have to make myself whole. And I can certainly get a lot of, of gifts in my life from my partner, but they are not what creates my wholeness and they can't take it away. And so that's mm. what I mean by love is an inside job. Another thing about that is that a lot of times what I see when there's a, a a power struggle or a loop, I see what my partner does. And I think if only they would stop doing the X or Y, we wouldn't get in this trouble. But really the secret of undoing that is I have to see my part of it and move that part, change it, walk away from it. I can't do anything about their part. They do it or they don't, but I can do everything about how I contribute to it. That's a really beautiful thing to say because it reminds me of the words by Neville Goddard who once said that uh, your entire life is your imagination pushed out. And so if your entire reality is your imagination pushed out, then you sort of begin to take control of any unconscious actions or thoughts or impressions or emotions. And you become responsible, like you've alluded to, of your own love Yes, because you are in complete control of it. So I like that. and. you help people address the thorny issues, right? You say thorny issues that yes. might be there in a relationship. What are some of these issues that you frequently see uh, in relationships that could use some work on? You know, I think that the biggest issue is the way that when there's a conflict that 
couples talk about it and they think that the problem is the conflict, like mm. housework or sex or money or those common issues. And the real, the real problem, and I don't call those the thorny issues, but how we deal with those issues is the problem, not the actual difference. So let's say we're arguing about money. That's yeah. not the problem. The problem is in talking about our differences, we stop listening to each other. We close down, we get defensive. So not only am I feeling frustrated about the issue, but I'm feeling really sad about losing my connection to my partner. And when we're sad, we do one of three things. We fight, we withdraw, or we pretend it's not happening. We, we walk away, we freeze. And what I tell couples is that the black belt of relationship is when you can talk about an issue where you both feel a lot of, of um, feeling about the differences and feel threatened even that your partner has a different point of view and still stay connected. Now, mm -hmm. thorny issues, that's a different issue. No affairs and betrayals of all kinds. Those are things in a different category. But the same thing still applies. It's just much harder to be able mm -hmm. to stay connected when you talk about those things. Wonderful. So I love the way that you approach this, that you should not ignore it. You should not sort of get violent or fight over it. And at the same time, you should not stay silent, but you should consciously and mindfully address these issues. So how does, so let's say, obviously, in a partnership, there are two people, one person is committed to the relationship and wants to sort of get the word out there and have this conscious discussion. How does this person build consensus in terms of wanting to make a change or in terms of recognizing and realizing that there is an, indeed an issue? Do you know what I mean? Um so I, I, are both people committed in this relationship or just one? That's the first question. You said one person's committed. And so, sorry about that. One person's committed. Are both people in? That's the first. Mm, yeah. This is just a hypothetical question, by the way. But, you know, different uh, people have different perceptions of what commitment is, right? So yeah. let's say if one person says this is an issue and I want to talk it out, I don't know how to put this, but how would this person try to convince or persuade or inspire the other person to come together, have this discussion? Or have you ever come across such a challenge? So are you talking about when one person feels committed and the other person seems to be more remote and they're not yeah. really committed? Correct. I So here's the, I have no answer for how to get somebody mm. to be committed. I, 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 there, I don't know any, I don't know anything that would work. I think that you can just show up in your truth. You know, you can show up with what it is. For one for one thing, AJ, I think that some people have a harder time with commitment to everything or to relationships. So it's and it's true. easy to personalize that. And often they have um like one person puts in the flag for commitment and one person puts in the flag for being more remote or having being more of an individual and often they're together. And that's one of the ongoing loops is that if you loved me, if you were more committed and well, what do you want? I've given you everything, blah, blah, blah. But really what we're talking about are different personalities. So mm. for some people, you are always thinking about how to attach, how to connect, how to talk, how to go deeper. Often their partner is someone that thinks about their hobbies, their projects, is not really thinking about how to get more connected. And so <laughs> the, the question that's not, I don't think that question works. Like, how do I get you to be more like me? There's, I think there's two questions. One is, is the way 
do I get enough from this relationship the okay. way you are? Because I don't think it's an option to try to change somebody. But I can say, you know, I need more of more time together, for instance. This isn't working for me. Mm. How about if we spend more time on the weekends? And you can either say, I don't want to do it, or I do. If you say, I don't want to do it, I can't convince you to do it because that's not going to go well. Even if I say, well, if you loved me, you'd spend more time together and you do, you're going to have resentment. What I can do is I can say, well, I really need more. You know, I understand you have more needs to to bike, to do your blah, blah, to do your hobbies. Um, but for me, I'm needing more invested time together. Are you willing to work with that? Are you willing to do it? And you'll say yes or no. I, it's not so cut and dry as I'm presenting it. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I totally understand. It can be sometimes a very complex landscape. But what I understand from what you're saying is to firstly understand what you want from this relationship yes. and what is missing and then express it in a way that is um, respectful, but also elicits a response from the other person to understand where he or she is coming from. Right. I'm saying, yes, I'm not trying to change you. Yeah. Because as soon as I try to change my partner, guess what I get? I get resistance. That's true. I get, but one of the things that I, when I work with, I work with couples all over the country. One of the things that I get couples, it's a skill and it's not the first skill. It's, it's down there, you know, it's, it's sort of an advanced skill, but I encourage couples to practice imagining how they can be more available to their partner. What do, what do you think Instead of me saying, this is what I need from you, which is where we start, w once people are really in and they want to learn how to have a wholehearted relationship with all the, the deep dive they're willing to go, the depth of that, another skill that I teach them is being able to imagine what would mean I care about you from their partner's eyes. For example, my partner, what would mean I care about you is when I say, go do all the things you want to do with my blessing. I love mm. it. You're going to go bike riding all weekend. I love it. You're going to go away with your friend for three, three months hiking um, or three weeks hiking, not three months. And you go, go do that. That's not what I would do, but you go do that. I want you to do that. And he would say, I know you want to have a special dinner at least once a week, just the two of us. Let's make that happen. So in other words, I'm extending my comfort zone to do what it is that means I love you to you. And for you, that might be time away. Mm -hmm. And you're doing the same thing, which is extending your comfort zone to include me more. Earlier, you said, what's an enlightened relationship? I think that gets pretty close because I'm mm -hmm. thinking you're not me and I'm going to give you what I want to get. So for example, you want another example? Yeah, sure. Um, when I'm sick, I love attention, pity. Mm -hmm. I love reassurance. I love my partner to sit around and pat the pillows and say, what do you need? You know what he wants? a bowl of soup, and to be left alone. So for years, what would happen? I'd get sick. He'd give me a bowl of soup. Here's a glass of orange juice. Off he'd go. And I'd feel abandoned. I'd mm. feel he doesn't care. He'd get sick. And there I'd be fluffing the pillows saying, what do you need? You know, putting my hand on his brow. You're okay. He'd say, I know I'm okay. Just back off. So I thought he was me mm. and I was giving him what I wanted. And he thought I was him. So mm. the extension is you're not me. What does it mean for you to say, I care about you, not what does it mean for me? Um, one yeah. of the hardest examples that I ever saw was a couple 
who had a pretty good relationship for many years. Mm-hmm. The woman was the biggest introvert I'd ever seen. Okay. The man was an extrovert. He had a public job where part of his success was how much he talked to everybody about everything. So for his her 40th birthday, guess what he did? He gave her a surprise party. He invited everybody she'd ever known in her life, from first grade, cousins from distant states. And she walked into this restaurant on what was supposed to be this great birthday with the two of them. And there were 60 people in the room. Mm-hmm. And she ran from the room. She was so distressed. And she almost left him. And they came to see me after that. She said, how could you not know that that would be the worst thing in the world? And he started out saying, well, what do you mean? It was the greatest gift. It cost me this much money. I put all this time into it. But what he wasn't seeing was that that was what he would like, not what she would like. Got it. So I hope you're listening to this Action Tribe. We're sort of learning over here is that we all love receiving love, but we love receiving it in different ways. And the more the other, the significant other knows how that person likes to receive love, the more thriving the relationship will be. And I love the examples that you gave. Some person might be an extrovert, some might be introvert, some might love soup, some might love cuddling or a massage. But the more you know specifically what your partner likes, the more they're going to appreciate that you at least know these intimate details or these things, uh, and then you present them at the opportune moment. Now, Linda, you've very beautifully uh, sort of shared the five stages of intimate relationships in interviews and in your book as well. So talk to us about the these stages, if you if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. Um, whoops. I'm sorry. A bad thing is going to happen. My uh, mic just fell. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the state I this I wrote that my first book, Love Cycles, talks about the stages in yep. in a lot of depth. And I wrote that book because I felt like it was one of the most liberating things I came to understand that that relationships go through cycles like everything, like waves of ocean and seasons, and that it would be really helpful for people to know that sometimes it's not unnatural. It's not doesn't mean something's wrong. If we're feeling shut down, if we're feeling indifferent or cold, like winter, or bored, or upset, or just have the doldrums, that those things are are in a long-term relationship, those are natural stages, just like it is to be hot and excited and, and connected. So those, So I looked and I read and I thought, and I spent a long time thinking about how relationships actually go through the same cycles as we do in our seasons. And when I looked back through one of my favorite ways of, of learning is, is poetry, and I looked back and I read about poetry, what I found was that so much poetry describes the first and the, and the mm. third stage, which is enchantment and disenchantment. And songs are true also. They're all about, I first saw you and I couldn't believe it. And you were everything. And I knew, you know, I had found my soulmate forever. And then the other kind of song that I found was the third stage, which is the disenchantment, mm. which is my heart's broken. I'll never be the same. Um, you know, everything is gone. And that there wasn't a lot about ordinary love on good days or regular days or even good enough days. So that was sort of my, that was my inspiration from it and how much it helped me to normalize those seasons that weren't all exciting and wonderful. So the first season is the merge. When we fall in love, we feel like we've found the other part of 
ourself. Some people call it our other half. And what starts out with this romantic idea that somebody else can make us whole actually leads to a lot of trouble because nobody else can make us whole. But it's that sense of you finish each other's sentences that I've known you my whole life. And it's wondrous that stage. The merge is when is when we feel like we're never going to be alone on the planet again. And we know now that that is mediated by chemical changes in the brain, that there's lots of chemicals in this cocktail. One of the things I, I often ask audiences is I say, ask them to remember who the goddess of love is. They came up with Aphrodite, which is mm. who the goddess of love is. People do remember that. And their son and her son was Cupid. And lots of the stories talk about her turning to her son and saying, um, in many myths and legends, Cupid, dip your arrow into the magic potion and look at Valentine's Day. We just had Valentine's Day, which is filled with pictures of Cupid and his arrows. Those arrows went in the magic potion. They were aimed mm-hmm. and they were sent into the heart of an unsuspecting person. And as soon as that person felt the thunderbolt of that arrow, what happened? They thought they fell in love with the person next to them, right? Mm-hmm. So that idea is that that's going to last, that wonderful, tingly, happy feeling. But what happens is that that chemical has diminishing returns. It wears off. And we suddenly find out the things we fell in love with are actually things that start to annoy us. And the other side of those characteristics start to make trouble. So I, so my, um, my partner's very predictable. He does what he says he's going to do. I love that dependability. But then when we get into a situation where I want him to be flexible and change, suddenly it seems rigid. Or for me, he loves what he calls my spontaneity, except when he sees it as impulsivity. Same quality, Mm. different way of talking about it. So we move into the power struggles. Those differences that seemed sexy at first suddenly become annoying, and we start to argue about them. And that's stage two. The third stage is where we move into disenchantment. We might be locked in the power struggles. We're just doing the same power struggle over and over and over again. And we start to notice at the beginning, the first stage, we see everything that's right. In this third stage, we often see everything that's wrong. Everything Mm -hmm. that supports our idea that this may be the wrong relationship. My partner is impossible. And we move into that stage sometimes for a long time where we start to collect the, the data that this isn't working. Just like in the first stage, we overlook the red flags. Third stage, we overlook all the good things. And in the fourth stage, we get to the place where we have to do something. This is too Mm -hmm. hard. My heart's shut down. We're fighting all the time. I've got to either leave, we've got to change something, or I've just got to give up the idea that I'm going to get my needs fulfilled in this relationship, or we're going to get help. We're going to find out what's going on. And what I suggest to people is that they do that first before they make a decision. Sometimes people are stuck. Sometimes they're wanting to leave. Sometimes they're just in parallel lives where they're they're okay and they've given up doing better. And so what that's the stage often people will come to me. Um, although I'm seeing people coming in earlier stages where they're mm-hmm. doing well and they want it to stay good. And that's exciting that more and more people are coming at that stage. So what do we do? I think we put aside the idea of what are we going to do when we're in trouble. And let's see what happens if we learn some skills. If we learn how to talk about money or sex or housework in a way that doesn't upset each other, in a way that keeps us connected, I wonder what could change. 
And sometimes just doing that releases people to remember why they got together in the first place. And they find the best of what, what they're mm-hmm. doing together, not just the worst of it. So I love the stages and how you explained them to us, the merge, the power struggle, the disillusionment, and, disenchantment. And the fifth stage. And then the decision. And then once you make the decision, then you're loving back again, right? You're Hopefully, wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly, you've developed the skills. You're working maybe with a counselor or a therapist or with an expert. And what you've pointed to very rightly is that there's nothing wrong with your relationship if you seek support or if you seek help. And even if you do it at the early stage, even better because you're recognizing you're in a good place in your relationship and you want to keep it that way, uh, which is wonderful. But I think that these stages can now help our listeners sort of identify which stage they might be in. Are you in the merge stage or in the disillusionment stage or whatever that might be? Remember that there's always a solution out there or in there (laughs) if you make the decision to change. So, Linda, I'm I'm curious. uh, Let's go back to the beginning now. How did you get started in this this field of uh, relationships and helping people uh, really take their marriage or their partnership to the next level? I, that's a great question because I was just in San Francisco where I come from and I just walked by the house of my first boyfriend with, mm-hmm. with a friend of mine. And I thought, and she said to me that he, this is where it started. And she's right. Because when I was 11 years old and I had no idea about what it felt like to feel these feelings, I got hit with the thunderbolt. And that's very, very young for that to happen. And there I was a week ago looking at his old house and thinking, this is where I started my investigation about love. But I started it in a way that was pretty rough. Um, and I, I had a, a idea. I didn't have great models when I was growing up for healthy love. And what I thought was real love was the thunderbolt, that power that I felt when I talked to him for the first time, it didn't leave me for 40, for, till I was 40 years old. And I had a, um, an idea that this is what love was. And I have looked so deeply into that moment and that first relationship and relationships that followed that were disastrous based on the idea that that feeling would lead me to the right person. And they led me again and again to the wrong person and led me again and again to the idea that somebody else could make me whole. And I remember um, writing a paper about the gold rush and Mm. saying that the gold rush was like love. I was in the eighth grade and saying that that a lot of people went for it and some of them died for it. And it was all romantic and wonderful because once in a while, somebody found gold and that gold was being in love. And I remember my teacher said, no, you're looking for gold outside of you. The gold is in you. And I didn't know what she meant. So that I think that 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 question of what led me to this was really a lot of years of, of unhappiness, looking for love outside before I could find it inside, looking for wholeness through someone else. And it was only when I changed that that I was able to select a partner who could really meet me and and be in a relationship where we could both become more wholehearted. Um, so I think that answers your question. That's a whole other juicy story, which I won't get into now, the story of my early life, but it was a lot of disastrous relationships that that led me to try to find out the secret. And the first secret was, there were two secrets. The first secret 
was knowing that I had to be as whole as I could inside of me before I could find a partner. And the second secret was understanding how to select somebody, that it didn't just come from wanting that feeling. It came from other parts of me that weren't nearly as exciting and sexy as the juicy feeling of being in love. Wonderful. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Now, a couple of questions in my mind. When you say selecting a partner, what does that involve? And what do we ignore? So we do we ignore the feeling or do we still have it in our mind? Or how do we go about this whole process? Because you you said selection. So I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. In fact, in the book, what I have is all the stages and what the normal thing to do is in that stage. Okay. And I have something called the counterintuitive move at each stage. So the counterintuitive move when you fall in love, it's not that you shouldn't have that feeling and enjoy it, but also know that that's that nature breeds for diversity. We fall in love often with someone who's so different than us, but we don't fall in love with someone that's necessarily compatible mm. and that, and, or, or someone who has the characteristics that you need for a long-term relationship. So I suggest that people pay attention to data that's not particularly sexy or romantic. Mm. It's using a different part of the brain, really. So enjoy the feelings, have a good time, but if you're going to make a permanent commitment to someone, you need to know, for instance, what's their relationship like with their family? What's mm. their relationship like with past partners? Do they talk about past partners as um, or, or why the relationships didn't work? Do they talk about it by blaming the other person? Another, another or do they talk about it saying, you know, I had a part of that. I was, or do and do they talk about it still respecting parts of that person that were good? Or do they make them all bad? That's a real red flag. Are mm. they connected to people in their family? You know, not do they have one person that they have trouble with, but is this somebody who said that my whole family is messed up and I have no relationships and it's all their fault? And that's not saying sometimes people don't have difficult families. Sometimes you do have to cut off or keep a distance. But I'm talking about something else, really. I'm talking about someone who blames. How, how does this person manage being disappointed? or upset. I remember one time I was with my, before I was married, I was with my partner. We were in Hawaii and we had to, we took a ride way out in the country to get rent a car. And I don't remember why we did that, but it was a long, long time ago, but the car wasn't there and we had been dropped off and we had, there wasn't cell, we didn't have a cell phone. We had had to be really creative to figure out how to get back. The place was closed. The car wasn't there. And I remember he was so easy with it. He said, well, here we are in Hawaii. Let's make it good. We'll figure out how to do this. But, you know, this stuff happens. And I thought that was a really great sign because I knew if I was going to spend the rest of my life with him, there'd be lots of moments like that. And this was a person that didn't get frazzled by things like that. Does that make sense? That's it does. It does. Absolutely. I love the stories that you're sharing and it <laughs> makes it easier, I'm sure, for our listeners to sort of make sense and understand the aspect of compatibility. And what I'm learning is that we need to not judge a person based on how they rejoice when when they have good times, but also how they manage crisis or manage a difficult situation or how they treat other people, These, you know, how they react to situations. Or I think in one of your interviews, you, you mentioned how they treat animals also, right? So yes. the small things make make such a huge difference. Yes. And then you realize that in your relationships, and you can take that for granted, Action Tribe, that every relationship does go through really tough times. 
But in those tough times, what are you going to do? Are you just going to give up? Or are you going to come together and work towards a solution? Uh, that makes all the difference, right? So thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Linda, talk to us about the pillow talk exercise that you once did during a workshop that sort of gave you like an aha moment. Yeah, this was a, a well, actually, this was when I had another insight that led to the two books I've written about relationships. I was working at an agency when I was first becoming a therapist with a couple and they were in an ongoing fight about money and they had they were ready to break up and they had a really I thought they had a pretty good thing going. But every time they talked about money, they got into this terrible power struggle and they began and they got it was what I was saying earlier that it wasn't just the the difference in money, but they were playing some hard moves. They were shutting down. They were calling each other names. They were angry all the time. Um, The guy thought money was to spend. And almost the less amount of money he had, he wanted to use it to enjoy himself. He had this idea, I'll get more. More can come. And his partner was a woman, believed that money was to save. And I don't, and there would probably never be enough money to really let go and spend. I mean, they were on the extremes. Extreme, and yeah. so I was teaching a class in at, at the, my local college in communication, and there was an exercise called Pillow Talk, and it was a class on debate. So if you're going to debate with somebody that has a different point of view about from you spiritually or politically, the idea is that you talk about your point of view and you're sitting on your pillow. And you're listening to them talk about theirs on their pillow, and then you change pillows. So I go to the other person's pillow, mm. and I talk about their point of view as though I'm them. Not as though I'm me, but as though I'm them. So it means mm. I've got to really get into feeling what it's like for them, why they feel it so strongly, why they believe it so much. And I thought, this couple doesn't need counseling. They need that exercise. So I brought it into the office. I said, are you willing to try something? They said, at this point, they try anything. And I said, well, you know what the other person believes and why they believe it. And you haven't had a lot of luck convincing each other. Would you try something really radical? And they mm-hmm. were game. So I said, I want you, to the woman, to be him. I want you to sit over on the side, actually change chairs and pretend you're him. And first of all, think about what it is to be him, his story, his family, his experience with work and money. And I did the same thing with man, I asked him to be her. And then I asked them to talk about money as though they were their partner. Not only that, I asked them then to convince the other person they were right. Mm. And when they did it, something really incredible happened. Mm. They began to feel empathy for each other. They, they didn't. And then I had them come back to their regular side or pillow. Right. They didn't change what their point of view was, but they made a lot more room for the other person. And to mm. me, that was an aha moment, like almost 38 years ago, that yeah. I, that had me starting to think about the idea that love is a feeling, but what gets us through are skills. And one of those skills is listening and empathy. Mm-hmm. So I love what you shared there. And had we ended this interview right now, I think the listeners would have enough enough information to work on because I think this exercise is so powerful and not just for relationships. I think... I think this exercise should be done in the president's office or maybe in the prime minister's <laughs> office, right? Or yes. maybe when they, whenever they're having a discussion. Uh, and even in India, I mean, one of the reasons why some of the uh, the wisdom from India and Buddhism is so advanced is because for thousands of years, they used to have these debates 
between Hinduism and Buddhism. And they used to do something called Purva Paksha, which is basically arguing for yourself and arguing for the other person also. Oh, because, that. yeah, it's Purva Paksha. But exactly what you're saying, by the end of it, you become so well versed in what the other person's point of view is that I'm guessing that the mirror neurons that we have in our body get activated and we have a sense of empathy. So even though we might not agree with the other person, what the other person is saying, we sort of get where they're they are coming from. And that makes all the difference, right? There was so, a, an ad, there was an ad, I think it was from Norway. I don't know if you saw yeah. it. It was remarkable where they had mm. four groups of people that yeah. were all different, religious, political, uh, cultural, and they all were standing in their groups. And then the mm. moderator said, okay, let's make a fifth group. Anybody who has ever lost anybody they loved. Mm. And people from that group all came together. And then has anybody ever been lonely? Mm. Has anybody ever had an illness? Has anybody ever loved their dog? And pretty soon the entire room were broken into all of these other groups and people were just milling back and forth. And yeah. those four locked groups became unlocked mm. and they all just became a part of each their humanness instead of their separation. Right. Yeah. So that's such a wonderful exercise to do pillow talk. Uh, and that could make for a great uh, date as well at home with some cacao, you know, hot cacao and and some uh, nice music in the background, essential oils, some candles, and you're doing pillow talk. So, so thanks a lot for sharing that idea with us. Now, you've written uh, that family history and personality type can wreak havoc in a relationship. So talk to us a lot more about this. How can their family history or their inherent personality, how can it affect or influence or impact the relationship? Well, earlier you, you said something about getting triggered. And mm. I, I think that um, one of the things that, that happens is we often get triggered by something our partner does and we don't know why. Yeah. We don't understand what, where it comes from. And so one of the one of the great values of doing family history is that what we remember from our family is very a very small part of what influenced us. And it really helps us look at how we were influenced in ways we've never thought of. For example, when you have families that come that immigrate and they that their first job is to survive in a new country and part of the rules of surviving in immigration is very different. Like, like, for instance, always being there for each other, um, ha saving uh, things to do with money, mm. often with pets, often with what you share with people in the outside world. Or here's one that I think is really that's really common is that I think that immigrate immigrating to another country has a lot of loss. I think it's filled with a lot of sadness and and because you've left so much behind and sometimes in the excitement of doing it, you don't feel it. but. In decades coming, my husband's from New Zealand, and he's been here for almost 35 years. But I, he, there are things I notice that are seem small as he gets older that he really misses. I, and, and it doesn't really serve us when we're trying to make a new start in another country to feel all of our feelings, to talk about them. You have to get on with life, mm. right? So yeah. then you have, you have somebody from the next generation or the second generation it still has that rule. Don't talk about feelings. But they're trying to be in a relationship that is modern, that is active, that is dependent on talking about feelings. So look, understanding where some of the family rules come from often gives us a lot more compassion for our parents 
or our mm. grandparents. And it also gives us an understanding of what we're acting out that really isn't true. Another example I give is sometimes we're more impacted by siblings than yeah. we are by what actually happens. Just I give an example in the book of a, a woman who was 18 months old, younger than her sister. And she and her sister was great. They had a good relationship. She was good to her, but she always felt that she wasn't good enough. And she married this sort of big star partner mm. who was like the person who people always wanted to talk to, who was really successful. And she lived in this feeling of inadequacy, but she didn't know where it came from because she was really successful in her life too. She started to think about how she was always a little sister and mm. she never did things quite as well as her older sister because she wasn't as old, but she had a story. It was because she wasn't as smart. She wasn't as quick. She wasn't as good at different things. So I think getting that information really helps us look at where we get triggered and we're not knowing why we're triggered and how we mm. can change that. Got it. So this is also really useful to be able to go back into your childhood and sort of consciously record or at least attempt to find out some of the uh, events or experiences that might have influenced you or even created some trauma in your life that you have forgotten about, but that manifests in the form of triggers. Because like we're finding, life is like an onion. The more you, you know, you got to peel it layer by layer and sometimes you end up crying, right? And that's what the healing process is all about. Yeah is really resolving your trigger so that you can show up in a better way in your relationship for the benefit of your significant other as well. Now, what what are some signs or what are some uh, indications or indicators that a relationship might be in decline and that something needs to be done about it at the earliest? Any any, any such signs that you would uh, point out? I th well, I think that, I mean, there's the big signs, you know, that you're not, you're not spending time with each other or... Um, but or you're arguing all the time. But I think the smaller signs are when you find yourself uh, not interested in your partner when they're when they you see them at the end of the day and you, they start to talk about something and you think, oh, I've heard all that before. Or when you're criticizing them in your mind or judging them and you're and you're noticing that, I think that's a real sign of decline. And that's when you need to either pay attention yourself and turn it around or get some help because we can feel, you know, it's so interesting about criticism is that what we found is that when you feel critical of your partner, that there's, a, that there are facial expressions that go along with that criticism that yeah. you can't see in a naked eye. I mean, we yeah. all know what it is to roll your eyes or walk out, but they're more subtle. And that what, what some research has found that if one partner is feeling a critical feeling or having a critical thought about their partner, even if they're trying to hide it, listen, this is amazing that there's a muscle in the face that twitches and mm. you can't see it by the naked eye, but their partner's heartbeat goes up 10 beats per minute. So in other words, I'm looking at my partner. I'm telling yeah. him about my day. He's smiling, but secretly he's criticizing me. I don't notice it. If you said, is he criticizing you? I'd say no, but my heartbeat is actually going up because I can, I, I can subtly notice that that change is going on in him. My body responds to the criticism in his body, even if I'm not aware of it. And then I respond to what my body is doing by shutting down, backing away, feeling defensive. So okay. hey, does that make sense? It does. I've heard about the fact that these are the, there are these micro expressions that people unconsciously do, but I've always found it hard to sort of notice them. 
But I think what you suggest is to check in with your own body and your your heartbeat in response to what is going on, correct? Because you're saying that... What I'm saying even more in that is that pay attention to your critical thoughts about your partner, because even if you're smiling and not saying them out loud, your partner is picking them up. They're feeling those critical thoughts. So that's a sign that you need to do something. If you're finding yourself in a circle of judgment or a circle Mm -hmm. of defensiveness, which is a different aspect of that, where you're finding that you're always defending or often defending yourself with each other, rather than talking through things that happen, that you're stuck in that pattern of defending. Well, I only did it because you did it. Well, I only did it because you were shut down. Well, I was shut down because you blah, blah, blah. Really starting to notice that those are signs that the relationship might be going into distress. Mm. And get yourself to the ER room of relationships by Mm -hmm. uh, paying attention to that and turning it around. Would you define this as a power struggle? What you just uh, I would define it. The power struggle is natural and it happens no matter what. I would define it as a power struggle that's stuck where Mm -hmm. it's like a um, it it, it, it's like a note that keeps playing the same note. Power struggles are natural. We get into them and we get out of them. I just had a power struggle with my husband this morning about vacuuming and he was trying. It doesn't it's boring. But we just I said, could you not do it? He said, I need to. I said, I'm doing this program. He said, can you go in a different room? We sort of got into it for about 40 seconds, and then mm. we both kind of laughed and backed out. That was a power struggle, and he didn't do yeah. it. I'm grateful, but I, but it was it, we moved through it, but the trouble is not the power struggle. It's when you get stuck in being right mm-hmm. and you want and you can't laugh at yourself and you hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, that's, that's exactly what I was coming to. How do you build a culture in your relationship where no matter what challenge you're going through? At the end of it, you're you end up laughing or cracking a joke or something like that. How do you set that in? What do you do? I think that one of the biggest, if not the biggest, thing that you do is that you nurture the relationship all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't mean every moment, but you nurture yeah. that relationship during the day. You know, my my partner has brought me a latte every morning, practically for thirty three years, and he brings it when we're in a, when we've had some bad months, hard months. Months where we're not very connected, we're just busy and yeah. very loving times. But that latte comes every day. And there's things we do for each other mm-hmm. that are acts of kindness that we do, whether we want to or don't. And probably we do less when we're not in a good space in our relationship, but we do them anyway. And I think that those sprinkles of goodness throughout the relationship, no matter what else is going on, and the taking the times to nurture it are really what gets you through those power struggles as much as anything else. It's like money in the bank. And when mm-hmm. you have to take a big withdrawal, if you've got a lot of money in the bank, that was, you're still in the black, even though you've taken a lot out. But if you're in the red all the time, just a tiny thing like forgetting the spinach to make a salad can throw you into a very hard space. Whereas if you've got a lot of goodwill, you can laugh about that. Mm, I love that analogy about having money in the bank. So you keep contributing Keep, uh, you know, setting up your deposits, a monthly deposit or weekly deposit. And then if you have enough uh, in there, then you can always draw it without going in the blank. Is, so this is part of the four transition times that you speak about, right? Well, yeah, morning. I mean, one of the, when, how can, people say, how can I do it? Because one of the biggest troubles I think we have now in this time is, mm-hmm. is time management. 
-hmm. Most couples I know are just so overbooked and over busy. And, you know, we have all these great things like cell phones to help us save time, but they actually make more time, right? They create more, more busyness. So how do we do that? And I think making the relationship a priority all the time is the way that we do it. And one, and so often couples will say, but we can't, we work full time, blah, blah, blah. We have kids. So I often say, would you spend eight minutes a day if you knew it would make the relationship better? And they say, oh, we could do that. I mean, who Mm -hmm. can't do to eight minutes a day, right? I, and so, okay. So what, what are those times? If you spend two minutes at Mm -hmm. different transition times, just saying hello and noticing your partner, you don't even have to talk. You can just sit and have a cup of coffee together or a cup of tea. One is waking up that time when you first wake up, how are your dreams? How do you feel? How's your day? Number two is when you separate for the day, when you each go and do whatever you're doing, taking time to say goodbye, have a great day. Let me know what happens. Um, the, the third time is when you come together at the end of the day. And I, and in my own relationship where I have taught this stuff for years, I can't believe how often we come in at the end of the day and say hi, and we go to do our various things. And don't take that moment to just two minutes to say, how was your day? Mm. Touch each other. Just say, tell me one thing that happened. And then the last thing is before we go to sleep at night. Start with two minutes, four times a day. And if you like it, build up to three, four, and even five. That'll make a lot of difference. And so this is another really useful advice that people who are listening right now can implement right away the four transition times in the morning before both of you or one of you goes to work when you meet in the evening and probably before sleeping those two minutes where you're checking in with your other person asking open-ended questions and really uh, using your sense of empathy to intuit what the other person might be going through will make a huge difference and it takes just uh, eight minutes that's all it takes so linda what are some key skills of a thoughtful, considerate, and loving partner? What are, what are some skills that they consciously demonstrate? I think one is to is to be sure that you're keeping your own tank full. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a way that's selfish or against your partner or as something to use, like, well, I have to do me first. But I think that the first thing is if I'm coming from emptiness, there's not a lot I can give. So being mm-hmm. responsible to keep my own tank filled of what it is that keeps me alive and not alive, but keeps me feeling alive. Um, the second is nurturing your relationship on a daily basis. Those sprinkles that, that we put through like the latte in ways that care for the other partner, even on days we don't feel like it, making time for the relationship. And I think that third is, is getting the, the, the transformational education like listening to your program, finding out what it is that makes relationships thrive and practicing those things. I think the fourth is, is patience, knowing that we don't get there. We just, we practice and sometimes we do it well. And sometimes we have to forgive ourselves for not doing it well. And that's okay too. Um, and the fifth is generosity, pra- mm-hmm. the gift of generosity. You know, the University of Virginia did a study a couple of years ago, maybe five or six where they look, they interviewed thousands of people to find out the most important quality in a healthy, long-lasting relationship. They predicted it would be a lot of sex, which mm. I'm certainly not against. That's great. But what they found was number one was generosity. 
gener- and of course, good sex has generosity in it, doesn't it? Right. But it's also generosity of of spirit, generosity when you're tired or when you're mad or when you're in your own space that you still can make time to listen, to do something for the other person. I think that that, and to me that I have found that to be true. And here's what's really good is mm-hmm. generosity is something we can grow in. We can yeah. all get better at it. That's true. So I love this. Uh, actually tribe some skills to really nurture and take a relationship in 2020 to the next level. Or if you're looking for a partner, then these will really help you too is, you know, keep your tank full, whether it's healing work or meditation, breath work, having that juice in the morning, going for kickboxing or going to the gym on an ongoing basis ensures that you have a lot of energy within yourself and that your tank is full, so to speak. Number two, like we're learning a lot of relationship sprinkles, if I can put it that way. Uh, You don't need to spend an hour long with your significant other per se, but even two minutes can make a huge difference than transformative education, you know, listening to podcasts or reading a book, just committing to becoming a better partner overall. And uh, like we're learning, having the patience to know that things will not always be perfect, but that you have to be patient with the other person and being generous, being kind and demonstrating unconditional love, knowing fully well that sometimes you will express love, but not be able to get it immediately, but keeping that long-term perspective into place and always putting, depositing some love into your, into your bank. Uh, uh, so Linda, now we're talking about relationships, but obviously from my interaction and engagement with our listeners, a lot of people in 2019 went through a lot of hard times, went through breakups or divorces or heartbreak or trauma when it comes to relationships. And uh, 2020 seems like a breath of fresh air. It's like we're turning a new page. So what advice do you have for someone who might be you know, recently divorced or had a breakup or something along those lines? Um, I, I think, okay, I, I'd say three, three things. One is to do what you need to do to grieve the relationship and move on past it. Not that, I mean, I don't believe in closure. I don't believe we ever close, that everything that happened is a part of us. But some people are so stuck in what happened in the breaking of the dream or the trust or wherever, whatever happened to cause the relationship to fall apart, that they get lost there. So do what you have to do. Uh, You can't just move on. Do whatever you have to do to be able to let it go so you can move on. So you stop defining yourself by the relationship that didn't work. I think the second thing is to do the work to figure out how you contributed to it. And that may be overlooking things from the very beginning. Uh, It may be your selection process. It may be not wanting to deal with conflict or being too, too much involved in conflict, but knowing that you can change your part so you don't have to bring it into the next relationship. And third is remembering that we are, that we really have to fill ourselves from the inside finding out where that emptiness can get filled with discovering something new, discovering who you are, finding a really good support system in all kinds of ways so that you can start to rediscover who you are. And I love the word, I've just heard this word this year, self-partnered, to learn Mm. how to become self-partnered so that when you find your next relationship, you don't go to that relationship from a deficit, but you go from a fullness. I'm enough And I want to know if you want to come play and join me, but not, I want you to fill me and make up for what's not there. 
Those are some great pieces of advice, which I'm sure that all of our listeners will be able to implement into their lives right away. Action Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's session and you now have some ideas on how you can build the skills needed for an enjoyable and thriving and beautiful relationship. Remember that there is no perfect relationship and you will experience difficulties and conflicts from time to time. But if you if you commit uh, to making this relationship work, if you learn the skills needed to navigate through the roadblocks, and if you put your heart into nurturing your intimacy with your loved one, uh, like we're learning today, then you can indeed have a beautiful, strong, and lasting relationship. And that's probably why Donald Miller once said, when you stop expecting people to be perfect, you can like them for who they are. So it is now time for our wisdom round, which is the last round for today, during which our listeners get to take note and take action. And there are four questions in total. Uh, So Linda, what is the best piece of advice that you've received? Uh, From my seventh grade teacher who said, the gold you're looking for is inside of you. And it took me about 35 years to understand what she meant. If you could turn back time and spend one hour with someone who's living or dead, who would it be? It would be that 11-year-old girl that was so confused and tormented, thinking that her value was in somebody else. And what is that one thing you do in the morning or maybe in the evening that has improved the quality of your life? I wake up and my husband and I look at our dog and we kiss him good morning and he jumps up in between us. And it just, it is, it's not just our, our dog that brings us that, but it's that we together have something beyond ourselves that we love. And we share in that every single morning. Gratitude that our wonderful dog is with us. Wonderful. And uh, if you could recommend one book for our listeners today, which one would it be? Well, the best book in my life is a book that was written a long time ago called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's my the one book I'd take with me to a desert island. And, and, and it's really a book about how it's meaning that keeps us going. And we are meaning makers, meaning makers in our relationships with other people and with ourselves. And that book has inspired me more than any book in my whole life. Thanks a lot for sharing. Action Tribe, would you like to receive this book for free? Because Audible.com is offering Action Tribe one free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial so that you can check out this new way of consuming books, which is listening to a book instead of reading a book. And in most cases, the author himself or herself reads out the book to you. So to claim your free credit, go to my7chakras.com forward slash free book. It's my7chakras.com forward slash free book. So Linda, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Uh, What is that one thing that you are grateful for? And how can we find more about you online? And how can we get a copy of your book? Well, this morning, I'm grateful that there are programs like yours and that people can listen to and get inspired and know that they can make their lives and their loves so much better. Um, how, people can get a hold of me with my website, which is lindaacarroll.com. I have a, a, a Facebook page for people who, want, who are reading the book and want to be able to interact with me. And I also have an online course that's almost developed. They can find out about that from my Facebook. And I have an Instagram account which is called Linda Carroll Official. And that, and if they want to get on my Instagram account, I put something up just about every single day to inspire people. My book is all over. It's in bookstores. It's on Amazon. Oh, they can also order the book anywhere. 
Great. So actually try to make sure that you get Linda's book, Love Skills, which is available on all places where you get books, especially Amazon. If you're on Instagram, take a screenshot of this episode and tag both of us. Uh, my handle is at my seven chakras. That's at my seven chakras. And also tag Linda, Linda Carol Official. And uh, as shared earlier, if you'd like to raise your vibes and feel better immediately, then I've got a free PDF for you. Go to my seven chakras.com forward slash feel better now. My seven chakras.com forward slash feel better now. So, Linda, thank you for coming on our show, speaking to us about the magic of relationships and taking us one step closer to a human revolution. Thank you for listening to My Seven Chakras at my7chakras.com. That is my S E V E N chakras.com. <laughs>